You're listening to the Speech Uncensored podcast. This is the place we dive into all the particulars of communication, voice, swallow, and cognition with tangible applications to the world of medical speech and language pathology. You can expect something new and interesting each week with resources and specially curated show notes on speechuncensored.com. I'm joined this week by Speech Uncensored fellow Rebecca Brown, who's joining me to co-host today's episode. We're interviewing Dr. Jordan Hazelwood on the benefits of ASHA special interest group affiliation. If you've ever felt isolated, then consider joining a group of SLPs who are interested in the same area that you are. There's tons of different types of ASHA SIGs, and so yeah, today's episode is just going to be kind of all about that. Okay, so I'm Leanne Porter. I'm your host, and I hope you're ready to get your nourish and flourish on, because here we go. everyone. I'm Rebecca Brown. I'm a speech language pathologist in Texas. I work in the acute care setting with adults, neonates, geriatric patients, and I'm also a member of ASHA SIG 13 Professional Development Committee. I'm here with Leanne Porter today on Speech Uncensored Podcast, and I'm so excited to be doing this with her because we're bringing on Jordan Hazelwood, who is just super famous and super wonderful. (laughs) I love her more than life. She is just a professional that I feel like I aspire to be and just a person that I aspire to be. She's so encouraging. And she is here today talking to us about the importance of getting involved in ASHA SIGs and what it can do for you through networking, professional development, and advocacy for researchers, clinicians, and students alike. So I'm going to turn it over to Jordan and let her talk to you about herself and her topic today. So exciting. Well, thanks, Rebecca. I will definitely return the sentiments to you. I appreciate your friendship and your collegiality. Uh, Rebecca and I got to know each other through our participation in the ASHA Special Interest Group, and I'm really excited to be here with you today to discuss the opportunities that are available through SIG participation for at any level of your career. Awesome. I'm really excited for this because networking and professional development and advocacy are three things that I'm really passionate about. And at the beginning of my career, I totally missed out on the networking boat. Like, I'm sure people told me about it. I was like, Leanne, this is important. You should do this. But I had this like image in my head that, I don't know, it was really negative. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And I'm also very stubborn. (laughs) It took a while for me to figure out that it is so important and it's wonderful and it's so helpful. I love networking now. I love meeting other SLPs. I love building those relationships. It's really reinvigorated and sparked my passion for my field again, just by connecting with other SLPs. So this topic is like amazing for me. I'm so glad we're here talking about it. Me too. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm real excited about what you said is when you started your career, you know, it's not a secret that you're a seasoned SLP. You know, I've been in the field for a while as well, but I work with undergraduates and graduate students every day in my role as an assistant professor at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And networking looks very different now for clinicians who are entering the field than when I entered the field. And so I think it's also important to think about how that has changed over time. And yet the importance of it still has not changed. Mm-hmm. Good point. And I'm glad you talked about like where you are and what you do, because I get so excited. I jump over that part. <laughs> okay. 
Did you want to give any more bio, Jordan? Oh, sure. I'll tell you. Um, so I'm an assistant professor at Appalachian State in Boone, North Carolina. I focus on dysphagia research, specifically looking at training and education of clinicians and students in, in dysphagia management. I like to think about the impact of standardization in procedures that we do along with physiologic function and quality of life and the impact on health outcomes. That's kind of my line of research. But um, as part of my job as an assistant professor, I advise and I teach as well. And uh, my teaching roles in, are for undergraduate professionals in training, becoming speech language pathologists or audiologists. I teach the neuroanatomy and physiology course here. And oftentimes as students are looking to build their resumes to get into graduate school and then becoming pre-professionals as graduate students. Um, I'm teaching their voice in dysphagia classes. They're always looking for opportunities to get involved. And my past relationship and involvement with the SIG program, the special interest group program through ASHA has been just completely invaluable. So it's definitely something that I sing the praises of to my students, but it's not just for students. It's for people that are, you know, seasoned clinicians that have been working for a while, as well as researchers. People like myself can benefit from participation in the SIGs as well. So I just, I think that's what I really want to focus on today, that there's a little bit of something for everybody and the joint efforts of people across the network uh, from beginning to, if you want to say end, right, of career paths, either, even those folks that have been retired that are still wanting to have a foot in the, in the waiting pool, we can benefit from everybody participating. And I think that's one of the, the best things about the SIG is that it is a collective uh, entity that helps provide everybody opportunities. Yeah. And I, I want to kind of touch on this. I know you were going to bring it up, but the SIG involvement is what you make it to be. So you can be in the SIG and just be like getting the community, you know, emails to your phone where you're seeing what people are posting and seeing responses to those posts. And that could be how you're involved. And that can be the minimum of that, but you can make even more of it and grow and do more than you ever thought possible just by reaching out and asking for those opportunities. And that's how I got involved in the ASHA SIG 13 Professional Development Committee. And it was the best choice I've ever made. I've met people who have challenged me beyond my beliefs, um, have made me feel like I can make an impact in a community that's, you know, not necessarily just a fast-paced teaching environment. They just celebrate my wins with me. It's a wonderful, wonderful group, and it, it is what you make it. I mean, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just want to take a step back. Some people might be listening here who don't even really know what a SIG is, and so I'd like to just explain that a little bit. But ASHA is the governing body for speech-language pathologists. They allow us our certification once we've passed a graduate education, but it's not just for professionals. Students could get involved um, with an ASHA SIG as a national NISHLA member. And a reminder for students that might be listening, you might have a chapter of the National Student Speech Language Hearing Association at your university or your school, but there's also the National NISHLA membership. And so becoming a member of the National NISHLA will allow you access into the special interest group. And the special interest group started uh, 30 years ago, you guys, as a grassroots movement of speech language pathologists and audiologists who were ASHA members looking for the ability to network and get together. And so 
There are actually currently 19 SIGs or special interest groups that range all the way from language and education uh, to speech science. There's one for telepractice. There are ones for higher education, swallowing, cultural linguistic diversity, gerontology, school-based issues, uh, audiology, health, oral rehab, craniofacial, fluency, voice and upper airway. I mean, it just goes on and on. So any subspecialty within the fields of audiology or speech language pathology that you'd be interested in, there is a SIG that would be right for you and perhaps multiple SIGs that would be right for you. Um, there have been years when I've actually had multiple membership or affiliations with those SIG memberships. And the way that works is uh, to join a SIG, you just really, you go to the join a SIG website from ASHA and then you say, I would like to pay a little bit of extra money on top of my ASHA dues. And then you become a SIG affiliate. Now in the times of COVID and people are always hard strapped and especially, uh, you know, around the holidays when we get the reminders for our ASHA dues, no one's super excited to go and pay some extra money. <laughs> But this is one of the things I want to tell you, you can become a SIG member at any point in the year. You don't have to wait until uh, your ASHA dues are renewed. And there's a, several benefits that come from being a SIG affiliate. And ASHA says that the benefits are saving, learning, and connecting. And I agree with those, but I'll tell you some actual concrete things that allow you to, to benefit as being a, a SIG affiliate. And my affiliation is with in the SIG 13, which is the Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders SIG, because my area of interest and in research is uh, dysphagia. But I teach voice, so I've been a member of SIG 3, which is the Voice and Upper Airway. And I also am in the university setting, so I've been a member uh, of the Issues in Higher Education, which is SIG 10. And so there's multiple subspecialties that can also overlap. But in being a SIG affiliate, there are some real benefits that can allow people besides networking to actually become involved. And what I like to think about for students is that it allows you to get connected with professionals in the field. And one of the ways you can get connected is through each SIG has a specific online discussion board that are regularly attended by professionals in the field and researchers in the field. Jobs get posted there, CF opportunities, uh, clinical fellowship opportunities get posted there. Uh, opportunities to participate in research and just clinical questions that clinicians have. Um, hey, can I please have a second opinion about this? Does anybody know about this diagnosis? I'm not really sure how this works. Who has evidence about XYZ? Those kinds of conversations happen on the regular in those discussion boards. And so knowing who is posting and being able to see uh, some front runners in the field posting on those on those discussion boards is helpful. And then again, if you're a student, those job uh, opportunities are are helpful, right? Also, as a student, you get access to the ASHA journals. And as you move between universities and you're working on your papers, uh, there's an opportunity for you to know who's publishing in your field, what they're publishing about, what's coming up and new and up and coming in the in the research in your field, and being able to integrate that. Obviously, we're all about evidence-based practice. Jordan, I love that you mentioned like becoming more cognizant of who is publishing, like who is doing oh, yeah. research, like knowing these names. That is important, like because when you have a clinical question you can already go and say, oh, I know XYZ is publishing, like this is their yes. area of research. Let me go see what they've been up to. <gasps> I, why don't I reach out to them? Like, exactly. 
like I remember like young Liam would be like, oh, that's too intimidating. They're too important. They're too busy. <laughs> like, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. And I've done that. I have found that people love talking about their work. They're All so excited the to share their knowledge with you. I'm All telling you, when I get on there and post a question and Catherine Shaker just slides on there and is like, well, let me tell you about this, Rebecca. I almost wet my pants. Not really, but kind of like <laughs> I hold it in. But she actually recently, you know, reached out on just a feed that I was following and said, Rebecca, would you like to collaborate on this project with me and this one other person? And I was like, okay, I'm going to pass out. Don't ask me. Revive myself yeah. and then re- respond to this email. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, they, it's just, it's so awesome how these professionals who've been working in the field for years, how they want to continue to learn from younger clinicians and they want to help you learn. And it's just, you know, as a student, that's invaluable. And, you know, as a person just working. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Well, and I'll tell you as a researcher, it's really great because when I have my colleagues, you know, that are out in the dysphagia field doing dysphagia research, it helps us connect to, to research participants. I have had a couple of surveys that have been fueled by ASHA affiliates, uh, filling out research participants. We get connected and network as researchers that way as well. So it's a big deal for networking. Um, I would also say, though, for professional development, it's, it's a really great place to be able to connect. And being a member of the SIG gives you a, an opportunity when it comes to professional development to participate in things that are SIG affiliate member access only. So for example, we um, as a SIG will host specific continuing education events throughout the year. One of the biggest ones that everybody is pretty aware of is the ASHA convention and the SIG 13 and all the other SIGs for the other subspecialties are responsible for hosting short courses and master classes. So the people that are volunteering as part of the SIGs are actually the ones that are gathering the speakers for ASHA convention and putting together the program for the convention. And that is a huge way to gather continuing education hours. But there's also ongoing education and our our SIG for SIG 13 was especially busy during this past year during COVID because we had a lot of changes that were coming through healthcare system and how we were doing things because of COVID. And so when I was previously serving as the professional development manager for SIG 13 for the Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders SIG, we had a lot of thought process about what kinds of content we're going to be putting out. And... um, one of the things we really were focusing on is making sure that we're focusing about swallowing across the lifespan and being able to meet clinicians during the time of COVID with answers and evidence and putting together evidence that makes sense, that was up to date and that was curated um, during that time. And they, I mean, they did a great job focusing on dysphagia across the lifespan, COVID related topics, telepractice, last year, I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. We were putting out so much content that I felt like as when I was just a regular member and not a volunteer, I wasn't even aware that my SIG did all of those things. And I think that now with the rise in social media being a learning platform, we are reaching students more than ever as just, you know, clinicians, even if we're not involved in university work, 
And we're able to promote that SIG and get that student interest now more than ever, which is just going to add to the value of our SIG because we're making the students part of our conversation. So that's very true. And one of the big pushes that ASHA had for the COVID era was the learning pass. So if people aren't aware of the learning pass that ASHA has is a plethora of continuing education uh, units that you can take at self-paced, self-paced learning online. But one of the benefits of being a SIG membership is that you can get that ASHA Learning Pass at a discounted rate. Um, we also have things that are not for CEUs, but are just really good professional development, right? Sometimes we mm-hmm. forget that we can learn without having to have an outcome of checking a box and getting a CEU, right? And one of my most favorite talks that we had recently was we invited the ASHA public service advocates who lobby on Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill on our behalf, came and spoke to our SIG about what ASHA is doing literally in regards to promoting certain bills or legislature that's going across the House and Senate floor and how that impacts ASHA members. And I think this is an important thing to talk about because ASHA dues have risen. There is a lot of um, controversy that can come up in the field about ASHA membership and the benefits of ASHA membership. And I think this is one of those things that can really be a nice segue into thinking about how ASHA is structured. A lot of people aren't aware that the the healthcare sector specifically for ASHA is only made of four ASHA employees that run the entire thing. And oh, so that, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, and so, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, but then everybody else is a volunteer. So it's somebody who is not getting paid that is spending upward. You know, I, I spent upward of several hours a week trying to get things managed for SIG 13 and fielding questions and managing volunteers. And it's a big deal. And so that, that initial point that you guys made about getting involved and just getting started is huge. And so I, can I tell you the story about how I got involved? Yeah, well, please do. I love stories. Because I didn't know. I just, I knew being a dysphagia person, I knew one day I wanted to work toward my board certification, swallowing and swallowing disorders. And so the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders has a wonderful uh, tool on their website for those who are interested in getting board certified. It's a three to five year plan. And so looking at that, and when I first started my CF, I thought, okay, this is my professional goal. I would like to get board certified in swallowing. I didn't know how to do it. And it said volunteer. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. So when I went to ASHA convention as a clinician, uh, as the year after my CF, I went to the SIG 13 breakfast, which for anybody who's never been to convention, going to SIG breakfast or the SIG lunches is great because they feed you and it's free. And then you get to talk to the people there. And it's always been really kind of fun because going back to that idea of who's publishing, the people that publish were in the room. So I sat around and I was like in awe that I was in the room with all of the swallowing people that were, you know, making the change in the world. And it was really, really great. And I just happened to mention whoever was sitting at the front desk that I'd like to get involved. And they said, sure. And I literally got an email the next day and was signed up and ready to go. And <laughs> ever since then, I've been involved in this, in the SIG for, in some way, in some capacity and having um, served as the professional development manager is actually how Rebecca and I got uh, to know each other because Rebecca was on the professional development committee when I was serving uh, in the SIG and um, it was just wonderful to be able to connect with the clinicians across the country to get their input about what it is that actual real clinicians are wanting to know about. 
what is it that people are feeling neglected about, right? So the SIG really is something for everyone. And I, and I say that because of that reason, we have a tendency, I think, to reach out for opportunities that are really specific for what we need, but we don't necessarily know what we need until we see other things out there, if that makes sense. And so I don't do peds. I'm not a pediatric person, but I'm a mom. And so suddenly I got really interested in pediatric therapy for a second. But this is actually pretty cool. And I also have to teach that. And so having access to that through uh, that professional development through the SIG was really great, even though I wasn't seeking that out for my own personal professional development. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So th- there's all sorts of things that can happen. So earlier when we were brainstorming, you, you mentioned how like you're taking a look at each of these three things through the lens of three different levels um, in our field. So like the student, the clinician, and the researcher. So how... As you've talked about getting involved in SIGs, you've talked about like the benefits for students, like starting out their career, getting involved, learning who the movers and the shakers are, getting connected and plugged in. So I wondered if you could talk about like the other two too. And Rebecca has kind of talked about like from her perspective as a clinician, like how it's benefited her practice and her involvement and professional development. So yeah, you're a researcher. Talk about it from the researcher side. Yeah, so from a researcher's side, this and it's it's very interesting because a lot of people will think that more seasoned researchers are not really in touch with the clinical field. You know, we're not in the trenches, if you will. Um, sometimes I beg to differ that my job is the trench and you guys have the, the gloriousness because there are things that each of the roles will pull together for the profession, right? But as a researcher, we are continually in training as well. That's the whole essence of my job as a, as a researcher is I try to answer a question and it leads to more questions. So I'm just learning over and over and over again. And clinicians forget that they are researchers as well. Each patient is a case study, right? And especially right now, it's really interesting because of COVID. We don't know a lot about what post-COVID dysphagia looks like or post-COVID cognitive disorders look like. And we're, we're all learning collectively together to figure out what that looks like. And so this idea that researchers don't need to network or have professional development is kind of hogwash. You know, I will tell my students, we're all SLPs in training, all of us in this room, myself included. And because I am still an SLP, right? I need to know how clinicians work. And my area of research is specifically about training. And so if I don't know how clinicians understand how to network, or that's part of the training aspect too. We don't get a lot of explicit training about that in graduate school, but we're just supposed to know how to network, right? So mm-hmm. reaching out, how do you find a CF? How do you know what specific grad school programs look like? And one of the things my students do is they come to me and ask me, but I can't be the bottleneck. So one of the things I've been focusing on in my role as an advisor to these these up and coming professionals is join the SIG because then you have a whole network of people like me who can provide you with the outlets of things that you're needing. And then, like I said, researchers can use the SIG platform or the discussion board to disseminate their research and to gather research participants and figure out focus group and figure out what kind of things the clinicians are needing so that we can develop research questions or develop lines of research that can support the clinical work that's happening in the field. Mm -hmm. The other thing too is advocacy right now for research is big. 
there's always questions that come up. They're, they're like ever circulating questions about, you know, what do I do during a clinical bedside evaluation? Is fees better than a modified, you know, for all the non-swallowing people, I'm talking about instrumentation, a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing versus a modified barium swallow study. That just came up again this week on the discussion board of which one's better. And the answer is it depends. And so then you have people that will chime in and tell you, in a nice supportive way, right? Because we're all learning how to manage the answer to that question and the things that you should consider. We're also thinking about advocacy for using research to support evidence-based practice. So with having the researchers as part of the SIG discussion board and, and part of the ASHA convention and all these other professional development opportunities that the SIG provides, it allows clinicians to understand what really is supposed to, what really is supported in in the research, what you really should be doing for best practice, what's been outdated and things of that nature. I'll tell you my, my getting started. You both, you both shared your getting started stories, but when I first joined the SIG 13, I was a grad student looking for a CF. And so I actually emailed Dr. Jerry Logeman, who's like the founder of swallowing disorders, all intimidated and scared and asked her if she had a CF. And she was lovely as pie to send back. No, not right now, but try again, you know, at another time. And by then I'd moved on, but it worked out really great because my actual CF mentor, Dr. Susan Brady, ended up getting me connected with my doctoral mentor, Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, and it all just came full circle. And so I think that the involvement in the SIG was helpful for me to get a specific direction in my professional development, but then allow me on the backside as I've grown and progressed through my career to now pay that forward to other people who are coming up and coming into the field as well. But I still seek mentorship there. There are things that I don't know about or I connect with people um, through the field that way. And it might not be directly on the discussion board, but you know, if I don't know somebody's email address, I'm connecting through people somehow through this SIG to make sure that I'm getting in touch with the people I need to help me to move forward with my job and my professional career. I love it. I just, I love all of these things. And it's taken me like six years of my career to finally realize that's what I needed to do. And then I've spent the last year and a half like doing that. Mm -hmm. And the change in my career satisfaction has been phenomenal because I feel so connected to other SLPs. I feel part of a team, even if I'm the only SLP at the facility, there are so many SLPs I'm connected to now who I can go to for a question, who I can go to for guidance or just to, you know, complain about something for five minutes and then move on. Right. We all need that sounding board. One of the benefits of having the researchers, you know, on the community feed answering questions is that they don't necessarily just come out and tell you how to manage your patient. Like, and I do think that innately we want just like cut and dry answers and we want it to just be like one size fits all for each, you know, patient presentation. And, you know, the answer is always, it depends like Jordan was saying earlier, but they get on there and they, and they don't ever say, you know, you need to think for yourself and boo you. They're always, you know, so sweet and just so encouraging, but they say, you know, you it's, there's just not one clear answer here necessarily. And they provide you with evidence and encourage you, you know, to look at the research on your own. So that's been a huge benefit for me. Um, Another great way to be able 
to benefit from the networking is for clinicians who are really trying their best to maintain a high level of awareness of the research that's out there. And, and it's hard to do that as a clinician. There's just not a lot of time. And sometimes there's not a lot of access, right? If you're not affiliated with the university, you can't get access to a lot of these articles. Being able to network with somebody through the SIG can allow you to be able to get a hold of that research that you're looking for a little bit easier. The other benefit that we haven't really talked about yet is SIG membership gives you access to all of the ASHA journals. And so you can get the research that is being published through all of the ASHA journals. And uh, the SIG actually has its own journal called uh, the SIG Perspectives, and it is a recognized peer review journal. And so many of the SIG affiliates, another way to volunteer is to actually review and, and contribute to the perspectives. So there's an opportunity there for a lot of people to publish or become a part of the research process if that's something they're interested in. Yeah, that's really awesome and really important. I can't tell you how many times I've been researching a topic and looking into something and it's in the perspectives and I'm like, dead gamut because I'm not in a SIG yet, but you're convincing me. That's not my goal for today, but if you come on board, I think you'll really find that it is pretty great. The other thing I want to talk about, I think we're kind of skirting around an issue, and this might be a bit controversial, so I'll just put that out there. And Rebecca mentioned it. There's a rise of social media right now, and there is a lot of content, and it may all seem pretty credible, but it may not all be very credible. And one of the things that ASHA and uh, the CAA are telling us is that we as instructors are supposed to be teaching our students how to be good consumers of research, but it is not something that students get a lot of practice with. And as clinicians, you don't have a lot of time. So the first thing that pops up in your Google search that seems like it relates to what you're looking for might not necessarily be a credible resource. The person that's really great in and has a lot of followers and is an influencer on Instagram or Twitter, may be pretty great in their evidence-based practice, may be a pretty good clinician, but I don't know if that's a really great resource to be using for clinical management of things, especially for patients that have dysphagia. So it's really important to think about the difference between a SIG and other opportunities that are similar, um, and the idea that this SIG is supported and backed by ASHA, the discussion board is monitored by uh, SIG affiliates that are knowledgeable. There's a code of conduct that is needing to be followed in the discussion board so that people feel comfortable and safe and it's not uh, a place that belittles or makes people yeah, feel Yeah, exactly. So, and that can be different than if you're just hanging out on Facebook, doing something, trying to find an answer. The other thing too that comes up because I am part of some of these other groups is that people are posting things there that they shouldn't be posting that are in ethical violations of HIPAA and all sorts of stuff. And, and that right there to me is a major red flag. And so the discussion board that occurs through the SIG along with the other benefits of being a SIG affiliate is that it's happening in an ethical way, um, in a supportive way, and in a way that is really grounded, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I can see the difference is that there's, um, <laughs> I almost see social media as like the Wild West, yeah. like loose rules apply, but like <laughs> popularity or like personal charisma can kind of trump all. 
Whereas if we go to these like SIG boards that are moderated, that have like the people who are like writing the research and publishing and who are like essentially the thought leaders in the field can provide that guidance and direct you to, to what is current, what is accurate, what are best practices right now. And there's just really not that kind of guarantee in our wild west. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's okay to get on social media forums and, you know, network and see what's going on with, with people in the field. But I think that you should always first and foremost, when you have specific practice management questions, you should go to a place where, you know, people are practicing in an evidence-based manner and, you know, turn to peer reviewed evidence and, all those kinds of things. I think it's just so easy to like thumb through social media. And I, I think that when I read something that said it's like the same as doing a slot machine or something in your brain, like scrolling. Wow. And so I think it's just like easy and, and more fun than it is to necessarily like get down and dirty with an article. <laughs> get, yeah. well, you know it, what I'm saying? It doesn't take as much cognitive brain power, right? To scroll and read a snippet of something that may be someone's opinion and not an appropriate interpretation of something. Even if someone's looking at an article, they Mm -hmm. might be imputing their implicit bias and not even being aware of that and sharing that across a, a platform where people are just remembering that one snippet and they're not getting the full context is, is that's an important thing to be aware of, especially when it can manage your, your patient. Um, and Jordan said the B word, bias. Yeah. I'm like, ah, it's everywhere. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's everywhere. and I think that's one of the things that is really nice uh, with the SIG. Everybody from all the different camps are there, right? Not the one camp on that one platform. And so if you have all the camps in one spot, then the camps can have a nice discussion and everybody can figure out what the options are and then make a decision. Uh, it's an inf- more of an informed decision as opposed to an influenced decision. Yeah. Ooh. I like that. I, I know. think it's really important to, to recognize like who is providing this information because as you've mentioned, Jordan, and as Rebecca has highlighted, like we all have biases. And so those get reflected in what we send out. So if we're on social media and we're contributing to a conversation, or we're starting a conversation or some on a topic or directing that conversation in a certain way, you should know like how you're influencing that based on your biases. And if you're scrolling through social media and you're getting absorbed in this conversation or something, you should know more about the person who's giving that information and where their biases are coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be really hard to do on a platform like that, where you can be very selective about what you share with people and what you don't. Well, it's also an opportunity to have anonymity. So mm-hmm. in the Ashes SIG forum, uh, this is some feedback that we've gotten is that people might not necessarily want to post because they're not anonymous. And I would say that's actually the first step. And Leanne, you talked about how you've kind of been working toward getting over this and you just had to take the first step. And I think that first step is really just being brave, right? And being okay to be wrong. But there's something I've been working with my students is, uh, and I might've mentioned this the last time I was on, is being wrong in the right way, right? Asking the information in a way, not because I'm expecting the answer, but I'm looking for guidance or Mm -hmm. 
knowing that you don't have to know everything all the time is is okay but that can be that can be very intimidating especially for students but i would encourage people you know it, it, it might even be harder for more seasoned clinicians because there's this thought process well i should know this but i don't and so now i feel silly or ridiculous asking this question and is it going to look bad that i asked the question and the answer is it's worse if you don't find the answer out and you just keep moving forward thinking that you should know this and not getting the actual information that you need. And so that being said, I've never run into a speech pathologist that will say, no, I'm not going to give you the answer. Right. Yeah. That's never never happened. Um, But what, what can happen is you never get the answer because you don't ask for it. So I would also recommend that if you're feeling really self-conscious about putting yourself out there and asking a question, like on a forum, for example, that's where when you build those one-on-one relationships with people, that you can go to that person that you've built the relationship with and you know they're not going to think less of you. They're not going to like, you know, make you feel bad. They're going to support you and they're going to help you like find your answer or yeah. guide you in that way. Right. So there's definitely being a part of a group, like on a forum, but I also really recommend building up those one-on-one relationships and they don't have to be in person, like in your community. Like I know I have more relationships with SLPs. I've never actually met in person now than like, than the ones I know in person. Yeah. Really good, healthy, well-rounded relationships. So I agree. And I think this brings us back to that idea of advocacy. And we, we usually think about advocacy and you know, in regards to advocating for the law or advocating for policy or advocating for our patients. But we forget the first person we need to advocate in the field is ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I'm teaching my young students, I say, you're going to have to teach your patient how to advocate for themselves. Start by practicing self-advocation, asking for help when you need it, identifying what areas you need help in, setting appropriate goals and finding a mentor. Mm-hmm. You, you can find a mentor through networking and having appropriate conversations about, I, I really am lacking in this area of my study because we can't know everything. And so mm-hmm. it's okay to, to give yourself permission to ask for assistance and asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength because you're identifying what it is that you need to be able to improve on and mm-hmm. asking for mentorship. That's not you know, a long-term commitment, just say, can I come and shower you for a day so you can teach me, re-teach me how to do a cranial nerve exam, right? Because we think that in that one time you do it during dysphagia class that you should know how to do a cranial nerve exam. And that's just the introduction part of the learning. It's not until you do it multiple times and see what normal looks like versus abnormal looks like. And maybe someone can show you how to learn it in a different way that you've never thought about before. And so that mentorship is, is a, is a huge, huge thing that you need to advocate for on your own behalf. And when you've been practicing for a while, it's okay to still reach out to that mentor and be like, how do you do your cranial nerve exam? Because I've been doing my cranial nerve exam the same way forever. And then one day I was like, I'm tired of doing it this way. I want to watch other people and make it even better and see what they do. And I think that that applies to even clinicians that have been practicing for a little while, because you don't want to get in a place where you're doing the same thing all the time and not building upon that skill. And it's really easy to do that when you get comfortable. And you have to make sure that you're, you're competent with what's happening, right? Because if you've been practicing for a while, there are new developments that come out and which is one of the great benefits of supervising students because they bring in 
from the university, the new stuff that's happening and they teach you. But when you're thinking about if you do something the same way all the time, you get rusty at other things. My example is, you know, I, I do research for modified barium swallow studies, but I do not do fiber optic endoscopic evaluation. I don't do fees all the time. So I would, I would need to be able to acknowledge my own competency and know when I need some practice or some retraining and being able to go through that skill before I was able to do it regularly again. The real challenge is knowing that you're the only one that can determine your own competency. And so being able to have the opportunity through the SIG to network, to find a mentor, to advocate for yourself and saying, okay, I need to seek out some professional development or thinking about maybe you need to, um, you know, start in a different role that SIG can help you at all levels of your career across, you know, from starting out to entering into retirement and, and being able to pay that forward on the back end of things with the SIG. Yeah. And I'd also like to just mention, like we talk about getting a mentor, you can have more than one. Oh yeah. You can have 20 mentors. All of your SLP friends can be your mentors and you can be a mentor to them. Like this is a very reciprocal type of relationship. Mm-hmm. We all have something that we can share with others that can improve their practice. And I believe everyone can share something with us and improve our practice. So yeah, I agree. Um, it's, it's very competitive when you're starting out students competing to get the best GPA, and then they're competing to get into grad school, and then they're competing to get a CF, and then they're competing to, you know, be uh, an actual SLP and complete their CF. And, and then when they reach that rung, they're like, okay, what am I doing now? Right? They miss the competition. And I would say to take that competition and turn it into a group a group project, but the one, the ideal group project where everybody participates <laughs> isn't involved, right? Um, because you're the one that's going to be in charge of your career and you can only give your patients the best care that you're able to provide. And so if you're okay with being complacent and just being like so-so, then that's the outcome that you're going to get with your patients. And I doubt anybody really enters the field feeling like I'm just going to show up to my job and clock in and see my patients and get my productivity and then clock out and then go home and never think about my patients. Almost all the SLPs I know are the exact opposite. They're staying up at night, worrying about their patients or trying to figure out the things that, you know, are tricky and and trying to learn and and figure that out. And I think that's the SLP we all want to be, but it, it takes effort to do that and to do that day in and day out, especially with COVID on top of all of this. It has been very tiring for a lot of people in the field, and that's a hard thing. And so that idea of self-advocacy and having a mentor, somebody that you can go to, and Leanne, you talked about just to vent, right, is so important. And so that networking that can come through being a SIG member and being able to say, okay, this is the one thing that I'm really struggling with right now. There is an opportunity for me to take a class or an opportunity to meet or even an opportunity to learn about and present myself, right? For those who are who do that type of thing, or to read a, an article in the perspectives or any of the actual journals and, and to spend some time that way. Those are all opportunities that the SIG provides that allows you to increase the advocacy and to sustain that motivation that a lot of people are having a hard time sustaining right now, right? We, we all love our jobs, but we don't necessarily love our work all the time, right? Work is hard. There's a reason why they call it work, but we all love our jobs and we all got into this field for a reason. And so finding that reason through that self-advocacy and the network and the professional development, I think is really 
a key thing and it can be reinvigorating. It really can be. Yeah, absolutely. Like I have experienced that. And so that's why I'm a big proponent of it. I'm like, you guys, if you're feeling burnt out, like let's take it a couple steps beyond self-care and think about how you can plug into this community. It is so invigorating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to kind of do like a little throwback to when you were talking earlier about self-advocacy. Yeah. That is huge. And when I've worked with graduate students, that is something I really stress during our time together is in our like one-on-one relationship, mm-hmm. I am like, uh, you know, I can't read your mind. So I don't know like what your stress levels are like or what you need more assistance with or less assistance with. So you have to tell me, you have to come to me and advocate for yourself. And this is practice for when you graduate and you are the SLP and you need to go to your manager and you need to go to your boss and you need to go to your colleagues and advocate for something that you need to be more successful in your job. And that's not always like requesting a new assessment or something like that. So I I really like that. And I think it's important to highlight that. And I think it's important too for, you know, if I can get on my soapbox for a second, we're all in, we're all in this together. And that goes back to this idea of competition. We all strive to compete, to get to our, to our goal of getting a job. But once we get there, we're all in the same boat, right? We have to be able to manage together. And so, that idea of supervisors training up clinicians, it's, I think it's important for clinicians to, to not treat them as students, but as fellow clinicians, you know, I expect mm-hmm. you to do this. And that rigor that we have in the area of graduate school is for a reason, because in, you know, short two and a half years, they're going to be my colleague and I want them to be a really great colleague so that they're easy to work with, but also so they provide great patient care, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea that colleagues are continually learning together, you have to all get together. I'll give one example of this. Um, hopefully this can ring true for anybody who's, you know, no matter what stage you're in. But when I was in grad school, I was studying for my first neuro exam and we were all you know, highly stressed out and lots of caffeine and little sleep and uh, studying really, really hard. And me and my good friend at the time, we had put together a study guide. Well, everybody else and their good friends had put together study guides too. So within our cohort, there are probably, I don't know, 20 study guides floating around. Well, I thought, hey, I've got my study guide. If there's 20 other study guides floating around, let's all email each other our study guides. And now we have 20 and it just became this huge collaboration. And it wasn't until after that happened where we kind of invited each other in to be able to say, I'm going to be vulnerable. I don't know if this is a good study guide or not. I don't know if this is going to be on the test or not, but this is my best effort. Here you go. And providing it as a gift without really anything expected in return. And my friend and I were like, well, what if we don't get anybody else's back? And I was like, well, so what? What if we don't, right? So putting yourself out there and being able to say, hey, the benefit of this could be much better than if I just worked by myself. It really was wonderful. And it allowed our cohort to work together as a team and not be as competitive. We were competitive for each other as opposed to against each other Mm -hmm. as we went through our grad program. And I found that when I take that same attitude of working with people as opposed to working alongside, does that make sense? Or even maybe not against, but teamwork, it sounds cliche, but if, if you manage your team or your other colleagues like that, then they can help you manage your goals and you all become successful together. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Well, Jordan, do you have anything else to share with us? Because I feel like we covered it like really well. Like anything else you wanted to highlight? I just want to say I'm really passionate about our field. I really love seeing the things that have changed. And I, uh, we've made great strides over the past year. It's been a, a year since I've been on uh, the podcast with you just to see the difference between before COVID and now. I'm excited to see what moves forward in the future. And, you know, since the time that I became a fledging SLP to now, it hasn't been that long, but there's been a lot of changes and a lot of things I think that are very positive for the field. So I'm excited to see where we go. I think it'll be really cool. Me too. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you so much. I'm glad to talk with you two today. Thank you. I loved it. Thanks for listening to the Speech Uncensored podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com and post a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts so other SLPs can find the podcast and join us. I'm excited to announce the launch of the Development Council for Speech Uncensored. The Development Council is made up of dedicated SLPs who want to contribute to the field in the delivery of podcast episodes, resources on the website, and community building. I'm excited about the plans that they have, so stay tuned as those develop. I want to give a big thanks to my brilliant audio editor, Laura Miller, for her rock star editing skills. And I'm so glad that you've decided to spend some of your time with us. And I hope that the material that we've covered today has nourished your mind so that your practice can flourish. I hope you go out there and be awesome.